Blog Talk Radio. Happy holidays to all of our off-the-shelf listeners out there. It, it's hard to believe Thanksgiving is gone. Just as a couple of weeks ago, I was in Knoxville with my family, and then now we're headed for Christmas and the late or early winter, I should say, holidays. So I want to wish you all happy holidays. And if you if you do celebrate and recognize the holidays, hope you're getting your shopping or spending time with your family or friends. Whatever you do to acknowledge the holidays, I just hope that it's filled with joy, 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 and peace for you. And, and want to thank you for, especially our loyal listeners. We've been on the air now over a decade, and I just thank our loyal listeners who've been with us all these years. And to those who might be tuning in for the first time today, I always like to introduce myself to you because I listen to online radio myself and a lot of times I'll be listening I'll enjoy the show but I always want to know who is talking so in addition to welcoming you the first Saturday in December December the 5th to off the shelf we just bring you we've had some phenomenal guests I was thinking about that early this morning the the New York Times best-selling authors we've had we've had people who their their books have been made into movies I'm just so honored with the guests that we've had, and we're bringing you some three more exciting guests who you can learn from and hopefully help to help you move your life forward. I want to introduce myself to you, as I say. I always tell you I'm Denise Turney, and I recently relocated. I know for the loyal listeners, I always said I was coming to you from Philadelphia, but now I'm based out of Atlanta, Georgia, and again, I wish you happy holidays. It is a crisp morning here and it's just absolutely gorgeous i want to leave this thought with you uh, and this is a quote from confucius it does not matter how slowly you go as long as you do not stop and as we go into the holidays it's something to think about especially when you start making your new year's resolutions another thing if you're looking for gifts i encourage you to pick up a copy of my latest book love pour over me if you like mystery and you really value relationships, and I'm talking parental relationships, there's a complicated relationship between a father and a son and love pour over me. And you get to see how that impacts uh, the relationship that one of the star characters, Raymond Clark, has with the love of his life, Brenda, a woman he meets when he's in college. Again, please pick up a copy, Love Pour Over Me. You can get it. Online or offline, it's an ebook and in print. If you don't see it on the shelf, just ask the clerk for it. Love Pour Over Me by Denise Turney because it's carried by the largest book distributors in the world. And now let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guest. And I'm excited about today's show. We often have novelists on our show. Our last show we had a book that was co-authored by two women, one an Essence bestseller, and another author, and they've written a, a series together. This is the first time we've had guests on where three people have contributed to a book, and this is a, a, a work of nonfiction. And our special guests today are Mark Borg, Jr., Grant Brenner, and Daniel Berry. Mark is a psychoanalyst. He practices in New York City, and he has written extensively on psychoanalysis and crisis intervention. Grant also practices in New York, and he is a psychoanalyst and a psychiatrist. He helps clients to overcome anxiety and mood disorders, especially as they relate to childhood trauma. And Daniel has been working with clients in New York City for 28 years. His treatment specialty areas are trauma, addiction, and abuse. And you can learn more about Mark Grant and Daniel and their book, which we will be talking about here on Off the Shelf today. And the title of their book is How We Use Dysfunctional Relationships to Hide from Intimacy. And who would ever think that anybody would even want to do that? But you can learn more about Mark Grant and Daniel at HTTP and then the, the colon four slash four slash IRRelationship.com and that's I-R-R-E-L-A 
T-I-O-N-S-H-I-P.com. And I encourage you to go over there now, even as you listen to the show, so you can learn more about them and their book, even as you listen to them, their interview here on Off the Shelf. Again, that's IRRelationship.com. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Mark, Grant, and Daniel. Thank oh, you. thanks. Nice. Good to be here. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I look, we, I look forward to checking out your book. It's Grant. Yeah. There is. Thank you. There is so much. Oh my goodness! When I when I Michelle uh, sent me this, I said this is just a topic that everybody needs to hear about. <laughs> Even when you when you listen to the news, the stories in the news, everything that happens to us, I think goes. It all has to do with relationships. The relationships we have with ourselves the relationships we have growing up, it, all that we see going on in the world, that is like the root of all of it. I wanted to ask you guys, what is the genesis of the ideal for the book, how we use dysfunctional relationships to hide from intimacy? Where did the ideal even to write this book come from? Well, you know, originally, this is Mark, uh, I, I had been very interested in a psychoanalyst named Harold Searles. And Harold Searles wrote an article called The Patient as Therapist to His Analyst. And his, his idea, Harold Searles, was that basically everybody, that we are all born with this innate need to take care of our caretakers. Because if our caretakers aren't well, then they can't take care of us. So we originally started thinking of this idea, and we actually call it ear relationship. Uh, and ear relationship is the dynamic that, that we're talking about in this book. Uh, and we, we actually believe that children sort of reverse caretaking roles, and then they find a way to sort of compulsively caretake as they get older, develop routines, and this basically disallows intimacy, empathy, uh, emotional investment, and vulnerability. So Harold Searles was really the inspiration, and we at first thought it was more or less a disorder, but later as we talked, we realized it was more like a, a dynamic. It wasn't something wrong with one individual. It was actually something that all people in the relationship do together. Wow, does this even happen? But in, I know, and I know there, there are, I'm told, more dysfunctional family relationships than there are healthy ones. But does does that even happen with the caretaking of children taking on these roles? Does that even happen in a healthy family? Well, it should we? it should happen. This is granted. It ought to happen in a healthy way in a healthy family. Obviously, there's give and take. Um, so it's always a two-way street. But your relationship comes up when it's really lopsided and the kid has to put in way more than a fair share to take care of their parents. This is right. And what happens is the parent comes to expect the caretaking from the child so that the parent is buying into the inverted roles just as much as the child is. So yeah, that right. becomes well, the way their roles are constructed. And the child ends up going through life uh, expecting all future relationships to kind of uh, be formed along that model. Right. right. And it's all going on under the radar. Like no one's really like aware that this is happening. Right. We believe that this is we believe that this is a, an unconscious psychological defense system that unlike any of the traditional psychological defenses that we know about projection, denial, reaction formation, th this is a this is a psychological system defense system that two people at least two people create and maintain together and people then become locked into these very rigid caretaking roles. And both people in the relationship, or all people, actually are believing and feeling like they're caretaking, which we'll talk about as we go along, but they have very different positions, and neither one of them is really accepting what the other one has to offer. So there's this kind of a, a log jam where everybody's pushing care onto the other one and not accepting care from each other. Ah, before we go on, we've heard so many things about dysfunction, but we some, there may be some people who still aren't clear. Can you give us some signs of a dysfunctional relationship? Because I've heard some people say, and it, it, I think that a lot of this has to do with what they see in their family and society at large. I've heard some people say that if someone does does not get so upset with you that they either scream and holler and curse or physically hit you, 
that they don't really care about you. Some people mm. believe that. Can you give us sure. some signs of a dysfunctional relationship? Well, we have, we have a questionnaire that we ask, um, because, and, and, and it's really good that you brought up those examples because those are very dramatic examples that in those cases you, really, you, know, you generally at least have a sense that something's wrong. The problem with your relationship is you often don't really have a good, clear sense that something is wrong at first because the lopsided care, it, it, it does work. You know, it, it reduces anxiety. So you're kind of in a, you're in a relationship that's functioning sort of to, 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 to allow you not to feel. So here, here are the questions that we sometimes ask people to try to help them figure out whether they're in an air relationship. The do I keep trying to fix or rescue people I'm drawn to? Do I keep hoping that they will fix or rescue me? Do I equate loving with taking care of? Do I keep doing for my partner even when I receive little in return? Do my relationships feel more like work than play? Do I feel enlivened or exhausted by my relationship? And does my relationship enrich my life? This is Danny. I think one of the things that that we often hear people uh, think or, or even say when they meet someone new is that they feel that this person is going to be is going to be the solution to my life. This is the person that I've been looking for all my life. This person is going to fix everything that's going to be that's been wrong, everything that's been missing. This person is going to supply. I think when you when you see when you hear things like that coming from somebody as they talk about a new relationship, um, that's – I don't want to say a dangerous signal, but that's a signal that something is going on there that may not be balanced in the way that a healthy relationship is going to be balanced. Right, right. I, I, I thank you for what you shared. Now, I have to ask you, uh, before I get a definition on what's our relationship – and you, one of you signaled or mentioned this a little earlier, and this is frustrating. Sigmund Freud, and I forget, I don't know if it was, I don't think it was Carl Jung, but somebody else in working with their patients noticed there was something going on that the client was not aware of, even though the therapist could see it, and that mm-hmm. led them into the 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 discovery of the unconscious mind mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. a part of our mind and this is where it's like how can you people are like how can I help myself then if right. there's something going on that I don't even know is there does a part right. of our of our mind does it blind us and it makes you think like when you said are you looking for somebody to rescue you that mm-hmm. it doesn't come off that way it would probably come off I'm imagining this is the perfect person for me absolutely. and you feel yes. absolute <laughs> euphoria and yeah. that oh, yeah. part of your mind is blinding you that you're headed yep you're getting ready to yep. head off a cliff yep. there you go <laughs> well, that's and, the thing. and it again you're heading off a cliff again <clears throat> because we believe these things repeat over and over and over again Oh, and yeah. by the way, both of you are headed off that cliff. Well, here's the thing with right. those questions. Here's the thing with those questions. Those questions, you know, they can get people thinking. And some right. people will answer some of those questions and go, hey, that's me. Other people will kind of scratch their head and go, no way, man. You know, like, like you say, Denise, this is the happiest I've ever been. This is, uh-huh. this is uh-huh. bogus. But right. there, there are also more subtle signs, which might be like you really – feel from time to time like your needs aren't being met. But right. but like you said, when these things are unconscious, then that is a catch-22. How do you become right. aware of it? Another, right. another ind- indicator could be that you have one person who's doing, doing, doing for you, uh, apropos of what Grant just said, and yet what's being done, done, done for you doesn't really meet your needs, doesn't really address uh, what you feel you need in your life and your relationships. But in that case, the person who's doing the doing, doing, doing is making themselves feel better by all that what we call performing. Right. right. But so so you might feel you might feel like better temporarily, but then you might be aware of a little bit of a dissatisfaction. But I think you know one thing I think of in terms of what Danny just said is that if you don't have the insight. Um, because you're not aware of things because they're still unconscious, you can look at the behaviors, and those behaviors, like this kind of um, desperate caregiving, 
can be a clue to slow down and pay more attention. That's right. That's right. Because you won't, you probably, you won't recognize your relationship in the honeymoon stage of a relationship. You won't recognize it when, you know, as you're suggesting, Denise, you know, things are working. You'll recognize it later in the doldrums. You'll recognize it later when you have, we, we think one of the first telltale signs of someone being in your relationship, especially if it's a romantic relationship, is that you're, you know, you're doing all these things, you're involved in all these routines, you might have a family, you might have all these events and activities going on, but you start to quietly miss this person who you very well might be sleeping with. This person might be in your bed, but you miss this person. You start feeling like, I don't know this person. We often find that when people start to talk to us about a relationship, it's usually because maybe they've had some kind of a crisis in their relationship and there were these expectations and one that, that maybe they would change places. Maybe now the caretaker will be taken care of, and that just can't happen in your relationship. People don't switch roles. Uh, so can you tell us, before we move on and, and get further into discussing your book, this is a new term, what is, and I know we've talked about dysfunction and how the brain hides things, which is very frustrating, and that's why people have to work with a therapist. What is mm-hmm. what is a relationship? What what is that? Well, I can give you the uh, wiki, you know, the, the Wikipedia ready definition. Can, can you give in, the short definition? I'll give the short one. Yes, uh, irrelationship is a jointly created psychological defense system that two or more people maintain to avoid awareness of the anxiety that's part of becoming intimate with others, especially feelings about letting people see and know us for who we really are. And, and what's important about irrelationship? One Wait, hold on, things- hold on. Did that, did that make sense? <laughs> yeah, right. It's, they're, yeah, they're, they're working together to actually hide a problem. Yeah, that's, that's right. What, that's yes. what I took from Brilliant. it. They're work- Brilliant. Which yeah. the mind what- is just fascinating us. And, and what they're hiding or hiding from is actually intimacy. And, of course, right. the reason that intimacy is so frightening is because when you're intimate with someone, you're exposing yourself to them. You're letting them find out over time what it's really like to live with you, who you really are. And yeah. that's terrifying to most of us. So yeah. we, we'll, we see many cases where people go through attempt after attempt at relationship and as soon as the possibility of intimacy begins to rear its head, they they head for the hills. Yeah. Ah, wow. Um, can you tell us what core concepts affect all of our relationships, especially intimate relationships? Uh, what are, what are some of the core concepts, core things that affect our relationship? And you talked about the honeymoon stage, like when mm-hmm. you're first attracted to someone, it. It's not only discussing, like, these core concepts, but if you could just talk about as well, I'd like to give some solutions on off the shelf. Oh, yeah. If something's yeah, going on I... in the unconscious, you feel like this person, there was a talk show host, I can't think of her name, she said she met a guy and she just felt like he was perfect. Five mm. years later, they were divorced. And I've heard of mm. a study where they wanted to see if, a woman whose father had trouble with alcohol, if she would be attracted as an adult to men who struggle with alcoholism. And the study found that that was the case. Yeah, and they right. brought a woman yeah. in to like a conference room, at a, like an event, and they had all these different guys in there, but the only one of them had a drinking problem. And time after time, the woman said that was the guy she felt was perfect for her. Mm. It's almost well, frightening. Yeah. So yeah. how do you put on the brakes? So you're can like, I, no, I, no, I can't can I do that. Can I can I yeah. field this one for starters? Please. Sure. Okay. Thank you. You know, we're we're essentially are programmed or conditioned in childhood as to how to read other people's behaviors and also what intimacy means. So these patterns get they get ingrained into the the deep parts of the brain which are out of awareness, they're unconscious. And then it affects the way we interpret and perceive other people's behavior. That's why the woman with the alcoholic father kind of gravitates toward the alcoholic man because she fits her template uh, already. Uh, early on in a relationship, it's about initially bonding and forming a pair bond. And so the brain chemistry is really kicked up, 
And it's normal at those stages to do a lot of heavy caregiving displays because you're trying to show the other person, you know, they're trying to show each other that they're good mates and that they can Mm -hmm. provide caregiving. Um, But that's supposed to settle down after a few months. Um, In the case of, uh, you know, this woman with the alcoholic father or ear relationship in general, instead of settling down into a healthier pattern, the, the early caregiving pattern just persists. Ah. And then you end up with this, um, you know, potential for missing each other and then getting divorced later. That's right. Rather well, than we call growing, it growing together. Yeah, and it's called the repetition compulsion. There, you know, it's old in psychoanalysis about the idea that we seek familiarity, we seek and recreate familiar relationship dynamics with our environment, and 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 the environment is represented by people. So that's part of what this relationship is based on the idea that people are our initial environment, so we seek them out. We seek them out, and we recreate over and over and over again the same, the same uh, environment. And that's why, you know, when we get into the recovery part of this conversation, we'll let you know, you know, exactly how we, you know, how we help people recover from this. Wow. Now, now when you say intimacy before, we, the next topic I wanted to talk about was the brain lock. That's something else that I haven't heard before. Uh-huh, when you uh-huh. say... When you say intimacy, are you only referring to sexual intimacy? I just want to make sure it's clear with the listeners. Oh, not at all. You, no, no. Means. <laughs> no, no. We we really mean knowing and being known as you really are. That's really in the okay. most mundane of possible senses. We even believe this goes on with friends, at business, uh, yeah, in families. And the term um, intimacy has has become at times synonymous with sexual intimacy or people will say emotional intimacy, but when Mark talks about knowing one another on a deep level, of course that involves physical, mental, sexual, spiritual dimensions. And you can't know another person unless you really relate to them on multiple levels. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. Well, I just want to make sure that's clear. That's what I thought, but I wanted to make sure for any listeners, when you say intimacy, what you're referring to. Can you now tell us what is brain lock? What is that? What happens? What What is it, and what happens to the brain during that brain lock? Grant, you want to go with it? Sure. Let Let me try to put it in in straightforward terms. Brain lock is essentially a shared habit, uh, similar to an addiction or a gambling habit. That, as you said earlier, two people are working on together, basically without knowing it, and what's happening is the older, deeper parts of the brain that have to do with habit formation, like the hippocampus and the striatum and the amygdala, um, are on autopilot. And they're on autopilot together with one another. And not only that, but the pattern that they're repeating is reinforcing the situation. And so it ends up keeping the two people in the same orbit around each other. And that's happening on a biological level like in terms of the neurotransmitters and brain activity, and that's also reflected in what's going on psychologically and behaviorally. And that's what we call brain lock. It's this pattern of orbiting one another that people get locked into by the kind of neurological gravitational attraction of the irrelationship. Okay, I know you said... I'm sorry, Dan, and to be clear about it, um, the biological changes that occur in the brain actually reinforce the behavior, and the behavior then reinforces the biological patterns that That's are set up in point. the brain. Mm-hmm. So, and then you said later in the in the show we will discuss like some ways to steps that you guys use with your clients to help them to recover. And that's one mm-hmm. I added to the list. Is there a way to either avoid engaging in this? I know it's something that the brain does. At how soon can, are there steps, tips, anything that a person can do to practice more awareness so they're aware earlier that they're engaging in these types of behaviors and they can stop it sooner? I definitely want to leave our listeners with some some tips on ways they can spot themselves if they're being drawn into a dysfunctional relationship. They can practice more awareness to spot, even though it feels so good, they can see some signs that I'm headed 
for a bad situation, and they can put put, put on the brakes sooner. And the same with the brain lock. Those are two I really would like to offer some tips mm-hmm. on before we wrap up today's sure. show. Um, how much of an impact for those who, and for some reason this this book jumped into my head, a child called it. How much yeah. of an impact in these type of situations do, do family and friends and society? Some of, some of these stories, I'm like, I don't know if this person could ever recover. But how much of an impact do all these, the family, the friends, our society, our environment, have on our intimate relationships and our ability? to recover from these types of issues. One of the interesting things uh, about uh, your relationship, it's a primary point, is that the child perceives early on the child's caregiver is the environment. That's right. And so the relationship that that child has with the environment, with his mother or whoever that primary caregiver is, that's going to be the environment that he's going to want to reinforce going through life. Mm. So he's going mm-hmm. to seek to recreate that environment. Well, yeah. let's think of like um, a concrete example of how the family might reinforce your relationship. But let's say a, um, a woman is unhappy in her marriage, and she calls up her mom to complain. And her mom says, instead, it says, well, you know, when I was with your father, honey, you know, I was unhappy about a lot of things, but you're you're supposed to just stay together and try to make it work. Instead mm-hmm. of saying... Tell me more, um, you know, and and it's important for you to have your needs met. Yes. Have you talked? Have you talked with your husband about it? Ah. Well, okay. and we also we also are living in a culture uh, where you know a lot of um, you know a lot of altruism and do-gooding and these kind of things are very healthy and very good. So the, one of the main problems with detecting a relationship is it is it goes stealthily right under that altruism so that what looks like really really you know good you know solid wonderful caretaking you know it's so deceptive because it it, it comes in the guise of something that our culture really values um you know so you know our our question the problem that we see is not in giving the problem sorry like our culture values self-sacrificing that's right. Ah. Well, that's right. that's right. That's right. So that's where giving goes beyond giving. And and this is why we think the very subtle little tip in your relationship is it's not so much about giving. It's about receiving. See, both people in your relationship, let's just say the normal is, is uh, dy- dynamic is two people. The problem is, is that both people believe that they're giving. The real issue is that neither one of them is allowing themselves to receive what the other one is offering. We even have a term we, we call relationship sanity, and we actually believe that re- relationship sanity is when both people in the relationship are giving and receiving from each other in relatively equal measure. Okay, okay. I wanted to get into and ask you some uh, specific topics that you cover and how we use this dysfunctional relationships to high from intimacy. Before we do that, I wanted to ask, what is, what is the dream sequence? You guys come up come up with terms I haven't heard. <laughs> what is what is the dream sequence? Yeah, That's the dream our recovery scene, model. It's a, it's a step by step approach, which people can work through each step to help them with what you're talking about, becoming more aware. Uh, and of course, it's not one size fits all. It's a general guideline. Mark, why don't you tell us what Dream stands for? So DREAM stands for, the. it's a five-step process. The first step is discovery. That is exactly what it sounds like. It's what we've been talking about, I think, in this interview up to this point, which is really usually hitting bottom and recognizing that something's wrong, i.e. a relationship. Uh, The second step is repair. And one of the initial ways that people in a relationship start to uh, recover is that they start to realize that if they're going to get well, they're going to get well in the same way they got the relationship got ill. They're going to have to repair together. That's the second step. That's the R. The E is empowerment, which is gaining a deeper understanding and acceptance and identifying uh, what we call song and dance routines, which is how uh, it manifests. The the A in the dream sequence is alternatives, which is where the people together start to create new ways of relating to each other. 
And the fifth step is mutuality. And that's when they're in that relationship sanity. That's when in mutuality, the two people have created that give and take where giving and receiving is being done at about equal measure. So what the sequence actually does is it helps a couple to to discover what has been going on uh, throughout most of the period of their relationship and then to come to the insight that it doesn't have to be this way just because it's always been this way. That's right. And, and then the sequence gives practical tools for constructing an entirely new platform, which is mu- the, the mutuality, an entirely right. new way of actually uh, relating to one another, not giving and not giving or receiving, but both for both partners. Right. And that that definition makes, and I'm sure our listeners might walk away perhaps with the same feeling, like, "Oh, there's hope." <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. But I'm sure it's it's that 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 raises another question for me that that um, some of our listeners might be interested in knowing when you start therapy, particularly couples therapy. Um, and then I want to ask you guys another question, but. Um, how long generally does it take to get through the entire sequence, through all of it? Hmm. Well, <laughs> we actually, you know, we think it's a lifelong process, actually. We think once, but interesting, here, here's the real answer to that question. One of the ways that we discovered the dream sequence, one of the ways that we're working it out is that we use it together, the three of us. We use it to help us. In our interaction, we, we use it to help us in, in building the business and writing together because writing this book with three people has been you know, a very, very intense and often intimate, challenging experience. So you know, we believe that you know, it's maybe the, the answer to the question is more how long does it take to kind of get started and set it off to sale. And I think well, that it depends. You know, it depends where you start. Right. If, if right. you're far away from that awareness, and if you're not an especially psychological person, it's going to take a lot longer. If you've been doing, say, individual work in therapy or with a spiritual guide for a while, and you're kind of close to it, then the discovery can happen pretty quickly. And then you can get through the steps of the sequence, you know, in anywhere as short as under a year, a few months to really sort of sink your teeth into it, to a little bit longer. Um, but I think Mark's point is that you don't end up like finishing the dream sequence. You end up in a sustainable place where your relationships are more sane and you feel comfortable saying what you need to say and listening to the other person so right. that you can have mutuality. And that becomes right. a different habit. That's right. And then, well, you're, and at also, a brain, then yeah. you're at a brain lock. That's right. Well, And we think that one of the very simple things that happens is that the dream sequence actually empowers effective communication people actually learn to listen and and to and to actually communicate with sure. each other does that make sense denise yes it does and I, and and thank you i have i have two questions one that i heard uh on a show once before is it true and you guys might not want to answer this one i don't know is it true <laughs> when you were thinking about couples therapy i heard that psychotherapists around the first or second meeting with a couple they oh they can pretty much determine tell this couple's not gonna make it or this couple's gonna make it is that true just a, just a curious question well look yeah just yesterday I had a, a it's very funny you asked that question because yes just yesterday I had a a person call me about couples therapy and and we were talking and he heard that because he, he he was very interested in coming into couples therapy because he wanted to you know fix his relationship but he had heard that that psychotherapists say that about 75% of people who come into couple therapy want to fix their relationship and about 25% want out. Um, and that uh, might be true. That might be true that we, because I do a lot of couples therapy and I've run couples groups and I'm involved in a couples group right now. Um, I, I, I think the best position, though, for a therapist to take on that question is to even if you think you know, I think the therapist is sort of bound to the client couple to suspend that judgment 
you know, the therapist has to live with uncertainty too. And I think sometimes the therapist telling him or herself, oh, I know what's going to happen. You know, this couple's going to tank or this couple's going to soar. <laughs> I think that does the couple a disservice, you know. I well, think- listen, you, 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 you take those thoughts with a grain of salt. It's countertransference, we call it. But, That's right. And, and, That's but right. there's also statistics. If you see a couple with high levels of contempt or disgust for each other, it's not a good prognosis. That's right. But it, but not every couple with contempt ends up breaking up. So as therapists and as authors, I think we want to be on the optimistic side, but still realistic. We do. Statistics are about about groups of people and not individuals. Well, that's that's a good good point. I'm sorry. That's a really good point, Grant. And I also think... See, and, I, and not to be too optimistic, although of the three of us, I am extremely optimistic, I admit. This is Mark. Uh, but, but I do actually believe, I, I want to believe, and I've seen that empowering effective communication, that is what the dream sequence does. I've seen it have effects on very difficult couples. I've seen it have effects. Like I had a, geez, I had a, a, a guy come in with, with a whole list of emails that uh, he had intercepted from his girlfriend who'd been writing other guys, and she reached over and she scratched his face. And it was an intense couple therapy session, and I believe that that, that would not be a very good prognosis for this couple. But somehow or other, once those two started to recognize that it wasn't a disorder in either one of them, although they were both thoroughly convinced that the other one was highly pathological, once they started looking at their problem as being something they were doing together, doing with each other rather than to each other, this couple started to recover. And sure, they, wow. they, probably started, they probably started helping each other heal from their individual trauma rather than just re-traumatizing each other. That's right. That's, That's right. one of the important wow. things to remember about the dream sequence is that it's it's a tool for a, for couples or more people to do together. It's not something that one does by oneself. It's a, it's a we use the term recovery, and and an aspect of that is uh, helping a, a couple to recover what it was about one another that they were interested by to begin with, and then attempt to 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 relaunch their their relationship going back to that place. And okay. understanding how all the dysfunctional behaviors that developed had to do with wandering a field from where they had been when they initially came together. That's right. Uh, okay, that's a lot. What do you think, Denise? <laughs> now, you guys are really sharing a lot of valuable, very good information in this. I'm sure our listeners really appreciate it. Can you tell our off the shelf listeners? About some of the we we covered dream sequence we t- gave you gave a definition of IR relationships. Can you tell us about some of the other topics and even some tips uh, that you share in your book? How we use dysfunctional relationships to hide from intimacy. Yeah, Grant, you want to go? Well, sure. I th- I think you know one tip is practice listening. And this is listening to really understand and empathize with the other person, both emotionally as well as, you know, cognitively, like to get what they're saying, and to take turns listening in this kind of deep and committed way. And that requires practice because it's a new behavior for a lot of people. And when you do that, you get better at hearing the other person, and you also get better at hearing your own thoughts there's an element of this which is almost like meditation where you're quietly paying attention to what's going on in your own mind. And we, we have an approach that's called the 40-20-40 sequence, the self-other assessment, which is literally taking turns, listening to each other while the other person shares their experience and not their criticism, but their own experience, uh, using um, a timer to actually make sure that people have a good shot at listening and being heard. You know, and that's, maintaining focus and maintaining focus yeah, on, and their, on their own stuff. And that's, so, so one big tip is to, is, is to make it a routine to practice listening to yourself and other people. Mm. And that isn't and, as and important, easy. I'm sorry. <laughs> that isn't as easy as one yeah, might no. think. No, it's well, that's, not. Right. Uh, One of the problems for many people when they're having a disagreement, an argument, when the exchanges are going back and forth, 
each party is actually listening to the other or simply waiting for the other to finish so that they can say what they want to say or even to retaliate. <laughs> and using yeah. this model, yep. one of Got the important the things is putting the idea of retaliation aside. That's right. Mm. It's, it's exercising hospitality toward the other to hear and receive what the other is saying rather than refuting it, rather than arguing with it, rather than throwing something else back in their face. Yeah, so we, we talk uh, about essentially cultivating compassion and kindness. Yeah. Which, again, well, takes we, practice, yeah. especially if you it, didn't yeah. have it growing up. That's right. We yeah, call it compassionate yeah. empathy. We believe that people can create a kind of empathy together, that empathy in this case is no longer something you do for someone else it's not something you do to someone else. It's not their feelings jumping into your consciousness. It's something that you do by this kind of deep, deep sharing and listening. And we actually, in that 40-20-40 process, we actually encourage people in that three minutes, they share, they share whatever that is going on, they share. 40-20-40 essentially means that you share your contribution to whatever the issue is at hand no less than 40% responsibility for what's going on, no more than 80. You actually create a space. It's, a, it's like an inventory where you're looking at a particular problem or issue, and you're, you're basically keeping your side of the street clean. You're, you're looking at you know, what your contribution to the problem is without judging the other person or even listing what their part of the problem is. It's really yeah, this wow. practicing practicing not judging is oh. is wow. crucial because <laughs> yeah. you, you learn not to judge the other person but you also learn not to judge yourself and you develop yeah. a sense of communion with them. Right. Wow. But it does yeah. take time. Yeah. yeah, and remember everything that we're saying here, every, the thing that really is unique about this system is that unlike you know most psychological processes, we every single bit of this we believe is going on between two people. It's never something that somebody does to you or that yeah, you well, do to someone else. You're yeah. doing it with the recovery part. You're doing our, it with our, our our book is one of the only self help books which really requires you to get someone else involved. Mm. And you so gotta you do it together. So could you take, if somebody went out and purchased how we use this functional relationship to hide from intimacy, they they may think they have a good relationship now, but they want to deepen it, or they might even want to have a better relationship with an adult child or a child who's still yes. maturing. Yes. Mm-hmm. So they, do they need a therapist involved, or no. can they just follow the book and then start to uh, realize some of the benefits as they actually yeah. commit themselves to practicing yeah. within the book. If you don't you don't have to have a therapist or a consultant involved, but you do need to buy at least two copies of the book. I have to ask you. I have to ask the three of you because you you interview so well together. And I was telling you last week we had two co-authors on, and they were talking about that one had co-authored with someone else before, and she said it was challenging. But uh, the the two authors that they're working together now, they say it is so easy. It's just uh, sure. remarkably the easiest. The three of you, three therapists, three established, very knowledgeable on your own. How did the three of you find each other and come together and write, actually sit down and write this book together? Oh. Well, you, oh. Mentioned Confucius, <laughs> you mentioned Confucius earlier. Um, there's a quote about when you're in hell to keep going. If you're going through hell, keep going. <laughs> well, see, Denise, what Grant is referring to is the fact that we've been working together now for five years. So we wow. actually had to develop the dream sequence. We had to develop the 40-20-40. We had to develop the self-other assessment so that we could survive the process together. <laughs> <laughs> You've made observations about the three of us and our personalities and how we interview well together. And, of course, what that connotes is we're three strong-willed, strong-minded guys with very particular ideas about how things ought to be done. Mm-hmm. And when we sit down at a table together and start to do some work together, you can imagine it didn't take long before, well, before the headbutting began. Mm-hmm. So, like Mark said, we had to find a way 
to create a, a, a real pro, an ability to create a process. Yeah, I had right. to correct them a lot. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was very difficult for me personally. What do you mean had? What do you mean had to? You mean like you're you're t- today saying that as if it's something that's in the past? Is that true? Are you are you kicking the oh my habit God. of correcting? I think us? I've gotten I've gotten better at it, but but, but, but better at correcting. <laughs> they used to think I was being critical when I was trying to be constructive. Oh, okay. But you know what I mean. But all but all joking aside. But all joking aside. Yeah. There's a fundamental shift, and and Mark and Danny can talk a lot more about this, um, from seeing conflict as a problem to seeing conflict as an opportunity for learning and growth together. That's right. Well, that's and, that, right. we, and, yeah. and that's actually true about uh, people that we whose uh, experiences are talked about in the book. Because one of the giveaways that's uh, uh, that they're ready to change the way they've been relating uh, is that they're beginning to allow conflict to surface. That's right. That's right. Oh, okay. And that's a yeah. vital sign that that they're ripe to begin doing the work rather than denying conflict, rather than even ah. denying the closeness that That's can right. give rise to conflict. Well, well it's, similar, it's similar to addiction. It's similar to addiction that in a way a couple or a group or whoever's in your relationship really does have to hit bottom. You have to hit some kind of bottom. It has to be some kind of desperate desperation that can break through the defense so that we can reach each other because we miss each other in a relationship. Yeah, except our book, our book raises the, what hitting bottom means. Because we yeah, want to help you, people it, learn what, from Can you experience. tell us what hitting bottom means and why do we have to do that? That's the last thing anybody wants to do because it's painful. What does it that's mean right. to hit bottom and why is that necessary? I know you said breaking through defenses, but isn't there some other way? Well, that's what I think. That's what we're saying. We're saying if if you're if you're wise, you're going to learn from experience. So hitting bottom could mean that your life is almost ruined because. Um, you, you've become so depressed that you're suicidal or you've gambled all your money away or you've drank all your money, you know, out of a liquor bottle. But, but we're hoping that hitting bottom doesn't have to be so destructive for people no. who are utilizing our system. A lot yes. of times when people go into therapy, uh, they're, they're at a place where they realize, I've done it again. Yeah. Like they need to have therapy rather than wanting to have therapy. Right. You know, and, and like I said, a bottom a bottom can be as quiet and non-destructive as I miss you. So I understand what you're saying, but an irrelationship bottom does not have to be a horrible, terrible event. It can just okay. be it can just be I'm living with this person who I actually like, and I have these fond feelings, but I'm afraid. I'm just afraid of being overly invested because I've been hurt. So we've seen your relationship bottoms be very, very soft and, and, and people who really like each other and care care about each other. Maybe they just don't have uh, the kind of sex life that they like. So they come into therapy and they talk. And you're, you're breaking up. A, a lot of things can be, uh, in a lot of cases, the couple can have what looks like a very productive, busy, active life, shared activities, shared family life, sharing tasks such as child care. Uh, they can be high-functioning professionals, and yet they're missing each other, not just missing each other within their hearts, but right. their schedules are such that they miss each other. They, they see each other coming and going on the way to brushing the teeth or on the way back to bed, but, but little else is going on. That's and then right. they, there's an awakening, like, where did we go? In mm. fact, most couples, most couples in the book, actually, that we used as examples, were, they really actually, they, they missed each other. They liked each other. They, they, they used the recovery tools to get closer because somehow they had drifted apart. Again, like I said, like a lot of times one of the just quiet little messages is, is in the sex life or it's in the social life. And all of a sudden, the two people realize that maybe one person's spending too much time at work, or some person's spending too much time away from the home with friends yeah. or in a hobby. Well, what quiet. I see a lot in my in my clinical practice and in the people around me is that simple sadness and grief is the last thing that people notice. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. For our listeners, as we come down to the last 10 minutes of today's show, and I I do want to, you shared some tips. I want to definitely share some more tips uh, on today's show. 
poor listeners who want to help their children, if we can get, you know, start working on these things as soon as possible. But for listeners who want to help their children to be able to feel safe with approaching and engaging in healthy intimacy and not to put up these defenses and run, 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 can you share a few tips that parents, some actions they can take with their children to help encourage their them wanting and not being afraid of healthy yeah. a healthy relationship. Well, the biggest one I'll start is to model yeah. good communication, listening, and and good emotional regulation mm-hmm. with your children yeah. in your relationship with your children. And I think part of that is also that the parents need to really be attuned with what their needs really are and yeah. very clear about what their role as parents is That's in right. hel- helping the child you know, become a competent adult and not right. using the child for their own needs. That's right. Mm. That's right. So having good parental boundaries, uh, if you have support system as an adult, uh, as a parent, especially if it's your spouse, but if it's not your spouse, if it's in your community, if it's your social group, having, you know, getting your own needs met in ways that do not require your children to fit themselves through little hoops to perform for you, that is the most important prevention for your relationship, that they are not required to do routines to make you happy, especially if those routines are rigid, you know, like you find a kid that's uh, overachieving or super funny, being a clown all the time, Ah, and, you know, you find that they start, you know, creating these rigid routines, and it's because they sense that the parent isn't getting his or her needs met. Yeah, my advice there as a, as a parent is listen to what you say to your kid. You're not making me happy because you're not listening to me. Mm. That's a warning sign. Yeah, yeah. You're trying. You're essentially being a little emotionally coercive. It's yeah. so important to remember that for the child, the parent, the caregiver is the child's environment. The whole world. Yes. So what the parent is giving out is going to be crucial in every way to what the child is experiencing. The child is supposed to be a child. And then the other yeah. thing is, is listen, to your, listen to the people around you. If they say, hey, you talked a certain way to your son, uh, instead of getting defensive and angry, say like, well, you, you know, that, that's activating for me, but tell me, what did I do? Sometimes my wife will say like, oh, the way you talked to uh, our son or our daughter, you know, you sounded a little harsh. And I used to be a lot more defensive, but nowadays I try to be like, I want to learn. Tell me. It's hard to hear, but mm-hmm. tell me. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I have to, and I thank you guys for everything that you've shared. You shared so much here on Off the Shelf today. I have to ask you, we've got, we've got three, three men on the show. And <laughs> if you go to a bookstore anywhere and you, you look at relationships books, most of them I find, uh, and maybe it's just the bookstores I'm going to. I don't know, but <laughs> they all uh, magazines, women's magazines yeah. versus men's. Most yep. of it is the woman focused on how to make the relationship work, how mm-hmm. to make it work with the, with children and in a relationship that a woman is in with a man. Do do men? We've got three men here talking about relationships now. Do men oh, yep. really think? about relationships, I'm talking to an average guy, not a psychotherapist, but do men really think about relationships and what makes them work and and what they can do to make a relationship more progressive or healthy as much as women appear to do? Well, we, that might be, again, going back to that question of uh, consciousness versus unconsciousness. I think that in, in our own ways we are absolutely invested in relationships but again we're not necessarily in a culture that allows us you know to have a voice to those desires so i think a lot of the ways in which we express our investment and interest in relationship is in our involvement in relationship Uh, like grant was talking about an involvement with wanting to co-parent i think there's a lot more investment in parenting in men today than there has ever been and uh, you know raising the the children the culture is changing there's definitely an idea that men can be more emotionally intelligent and vulnerable and that there's a, a kind of a masculine way of being vulnerable, which is, which is praiseworthy. Yeah. 
but it's yeah. it's it's still evolving. You're right. Yeah. 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 Well, that's that that is that's good to hear. I'm sure you. I, I would imagine <laughs> that you might hear that from from women. <laughs> like I feel like I'm doing all the work, but yes, so. And it's not culture. It's becoming more culturally acceptable because more men are staying at home and taking care of their children than they did yeah. in years past. What have readers yeah. been saying to you guys so far about how we use this functional relationships to hide from intimacy? What what type of feedback have you been hearing from <laughs> readers? And have you had any feedback from other therapists about the book? One of the most interesting things that we've gotten from both from other clinicians and from consumers of clinical services is their surprise at seeing that somebody has finally put a name to yeah. something that they've observed in their personal lives, you know, in the lives of their friends, and in their professional practices. They've observed so a lot of years. a lot of feedback, that, uh, positive feedback that we've named something that's a shared defense. Um, yeah. A lot of positive feedback from both men and women that this has really already helped them, and a lot of a lot of positive feedback from therapists who want us to develop a clinical model that they can use in their practice. Which wow. we're doing increasingly now, right, right. Wow, that is very, very good. Um, where can off-the-shelf listeners get a copy of how we use this functional relationships to hide from intimacy, and is it available in print, uh, ebook, and audio format? It is available uh, at Amazon. You can buy the book at Amazon. It can also be bought from our own website, irrelationship.com, and it is available in print as well as as an ebook. Mm-hmm. And we're anticipating uh, the release of an audio book, though we don't oh, know okay. exactly when that's going to be. Yeah, yeah. And, and actually, also, to... you can buy our book at our publisher's website, which is Central Recovery Press. Yeah. Okay. And the and the title that you'd look for to buy the book would be it's just the book is called Irrelationship, which I R R E L A T I O N S H I P. So that irrelationship is the super title, and uh, you know, how we use the functional relationships to hide from intimacy is the subtitle. But if okay, you Google okay. that word, you're you're going to find it all over the place. And yeah, irrelationship. I R relationship. <laughs> I R relationship yeah. listeners. Now, do you have any upcoming speaking events? Book signing events uh, that all interested listeners could attend. There's a there's a, a page on our website called Media and Mentions uh, that's on a drop down menu that lists upcoming engagements. We've got a couple of radio and podcasts coming up. Um, we are scheduling some book signings and public uh, meetings. But if you go to our website for updates, you can find it there. Yeah. Okay. Really quickly, there's one more thing I wanted to get, and we only have a few minutes left. I wanted to, uh, are there any signs for people who are entering a relationship, even if it feels very good, are there any signs that this might not be best for you? Well, we just asked you to. Yeah. I would say if if you've been through a series of relationships that haven't worked out before you start a relationship, that's a sign to stop and pay attention to what's going on. Or if you if you know have yourself to have had the experience over and over again of saying this person is perfect for me. Oh uh, yeah. Last. That's right. And if that you're again and again. Oh. <laughs> in other words, okay. we recommend you hit the pause button between okay. relationships to ask yourself exactly these questions Grant and Danny are suggesting, which is am I doing the same thing over and over again and expecting okay. different results? Yeah, that's a, that's that's a common pattern. Is uh, I'm looking for the perfect person. This isn't working out. Oh my gosh, I keep making a mistake, and then you forget the oh my gosh, I keep making a mistake, and the next thing you know, you're looking for the perfect person again. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, last question: Can you tell us where, if you're on any social networks, we have your website? Can you let our listeners know where they can find you if you're on any of the social networks? We're actually blogging on psychology. We have a blog that's hosted by Psychology Today. We're on Psychology Today. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. And we have a number of videos on our YouTube channel, which show us talking um, and have some other material that your listeners may find very helpful. Okay. I wanted, we want to thank Drs. Mark Borg, Grant Brenner, and Daniel Berry for being here with us. 
on Off the Shelf this morning. You can find them online, listeners, at irrelationship.com, spelled just the way it sounds, irrelationship.com, no spaces between the I or the R. And you can, their, their videos, they said they're doing blogging on psychology today. You can go there, and they're on the social media networks as well and follow them. And please get a copy of their book, IR Relationship, How We Use Dysfunctional Relationships to Hide from Intimacy. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank Thanks, you. Denise. Denise, it's been we wonderful. Really it's a lot you. of fun. Thank you. Thank it it you. was. As I always tell you to our listeners, you are so amazing. You are incredible. Go out and create an awesome day for yourself. See you back here next Saturday, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, where we will bring you another phenomenal guest. Bye for now. To the doctors, I'll shoot you an email. Thank you so much. Thank you, Denise. Bye-bye.